Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Dark Age Beliefs. It's a combination episode that compiles four episodes on paganism, early Christians in Wales, early Christians in England, and the issues regarding conversion. I hope you enjoy it. So, where were we? When we last left off, we were right on the cusp of a major shift in Anglo-Saxon England. And we've been talking about the various kingdoms and the cultures and the politics that were surrounding all of that. And as we go forward in this series, what I hope you're beginning to get a sense of from both the Welsh cast and with all the other shows that have been focusing on the so-called Dark Ages is that life in Britain was incredibly fragmented at this point in history. We're simply not dealing with a homogenous population over the whole of Britain, or even the whole of Wales or England or anywhere like that. In today's culture, we have a surprising amount of commonality thanks to the influences of media, travel, and national political bodies. But even today, you'll find distinct cultural differences in different parts of Wales, in different parts of England, and definitely in different parts of the UK, like comparing, say, Wales with Kent. Well, part of what I've been trying to show you as we've been going through all this stuff is that the cultural differences would have been even greater back then. There were different cultural groups, ethnic groups, kingdoms, you name it. Britain wasn't Britain. It was just an island with a patchwork of different communities within it. And that becomes quite an issue for us as we try and look at religion, since our records are generally rather sparse. And that scarcity only serves to heighten the difficulties that we have with the diversity of cultures that we're seeing in Britain. For example, even if we had detailed texts on the religious practices of David, it still wouldn't necessarily tell us much of anything regarding the remainder of Britain. I mean, it wouldn't even really tell us much even if we're looking at members of the same religion. As we go forward, we're going to find that Christians in one area of Britain won't necessarily practice in the same way as Christians in another area. And when we add paganism into the mix, it gets really complicated. Paganism isn't monolithic, after all. Rather, during this time, the term pretty much encompassed everything that wasn't Christianity. So just because Gildas was telling us that some Welsh kings were pagans didn't mean that they had anything in common with the Anglo-Saxon pagans or even fellow British pagans. They might have all been dealing with different gods in different ways. So deciphering religious beliefs from this era can be a bit challenging. And I know how we've been talking about how this era is challenging and help virtually every way possible. And at this point, I'm thinking that there probably should be a drinking game for every time I remind you of how little we know and how tough this era is. But that goes doubly for things like religious beliefs. Think about it in terms of our modern era. How much would a stranger know about your personal religious beliefs and how you practice them from simply going through your garbage and maybe reading a couple incomplete blog posts? I mean, even if that stranger was lucky and read something that you wrote that was related to religion, would that really be reflective of your entire viewpoint and how you practice? And more importantly, would it be reflective of your community, much less your nation? Probably not, right? Well, for a lot of this stuff, that's the sort of things that we're dealing with here. We have a few lives of saints that we can look to, and a few other records that manage to survive, and we have some archaeology. But other than that, it's pretty tough to get a clear view. 
So as we go forward, we're going to try and shed some light on the beliefs that these people had. But as we do, try and keep in mind that our sources are limited and that some of them may only reflect a small handful of people or maybe even only a single individual rather than any sort of major religious movement. And what is becoming increasingly clear is that life in the East was very different from life in Wales. Sure, the West was fragmented, and from what we've heard from Gildas, not everything was Christian, neither prior to nor following the withdrawal of Rome. But in general, we're given a sense that Christianity, monastic life, literacy, and other vestiges of the old order were still persisting in Wales. But in the East? Yeah, they were on a different track. Part of the issue was that Christianity was largely an urban religion, and it had only been the official religion of the empire for a short while before Rome withdrew. Now, this wasn't as much of a problem for the Celtic West because the old social orders persisted. And as a result, the rural peasantry appears to have started to follow the cool kids. And so in the West, Christianity spread. The trouble for the East, though, is that it doesn't look like those social orders survived, except for in a few pockets like Cadbury, Congresbury, and Roxeter. So instead, what you had was a large peasant population, or Pagani, who followed their old gods. And not just Roman gods, but also older Celtic gods. And sometimes, even blends of the two, such as Maponus Apollo, that was a single god who blended the major northern British Celtic god, Maponis, together with the Greco-Roman god, Apollo. And we're still looking for references to Starbuck. But it wasn't just old local gods and Roman gods. I mean, the Anglo-Saxons were present in Britain as well. And they didn't take long before they were the political elite. And they weren't Christian either. They were pagans. They had their own Norse gods like Thunor and Woden. Furthermore, the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy was quite happy with their gods. They've been doing pretty well, thank you very much. And more than that, most of their dynasties began with men connected to major gods, often Woden. And when it came to cultural shifts in the East, it was a top-down affair. What I mean by that is whoever was at the top of the social ladder typically set the tone for everyone else. It was that whole thing of the cool kids are setting the style. So when you had a group of individuals at the top of the social ladder who were rather enjoying the power that came with being able to say, hey, did you know that I'm descended from the Allfather? Well, there probably wasn't much of an incentive to want to convert to the religion of the poor Britons who didn't seem to have any of the favor of the gods, and also, if the theories are correct, were even struck with a plague that at least partially spared the Germanic upper classes. All in all, why would you want to switch? From a religious standpoint, the Anglo-Saxon gods probably seemed incredibly powerful. And even if you're an atheist in the Anglo-Saxon world and you didn't really believe in the gods, it was still really handy to be able to say, I'm descendant from a god, listen up. So in those early days, there just wasn't much emphasis placed upon the spread of Christianity in the East, at least not on the level that we see in the West or across the Channel in Gaul. And that easily could have been because of the factors I just mentioned and also because it was the religion of the underclasses. And it was a bit alien. I mean, what would a warrior culture have in common with a god who is a peaceful civilian? And to make matters worse, it doesn't really look like the priestly classes were held in very high esteem in Anglo-Saxon Britain, at least not when compared to the West. So all of that would have conspired to make it pretty tough to convert Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. 
and as a consequence, you have a lot of pagans running around. Now, to be fair, we do see occasional hints that maybe small pockets of Christians survived in the East, and it looks like it did hold on a little among the subordinate British population living under Anglo-Saxon rule. And as the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms expanded into British communities, the Christian population probably expanded significantly in numbers. But still, we're just not seeing anything regarding Christianity on the scale of what we see in the West. And for the vast majority of the people in the East, the order of the day was paganism. And unfortunately, we're rather ignorant on what that paganism looked like. We have hints of it in archaeology, and we have Bede, but Bede was writing over a hundred years after the Roman church returned to Britain, so that's hardly a clear view of the early sub-Roman paganism. I mean, he's better than nothing, but we're not dealing with a cultural anthropologist here. Nor are we dealing with a lot of first-hand evidence of what pagan rituals looked like in the early period. All we know from Bede is what he thought of some pagan rituals from his vantage point in the 8th century. And the reality is, he doesn't even really talk about the pagan rituals that would have been going on in his own time. For example, he could have been speaking about barrow burials, and how they were conducted. But he didn't. Instead, he generally speaks of things that happened long before he was born, and his view, as a result, is incredibly limited. And honestly, his view just could not have been as detailed and unbiased as we'd like. Not just because of his own ecclesiastical background and the passage of time, but also because of his limited sources. When we look at his accounts of earlier pagan practices, there are some pretty obvious biases that are in there. But his sources for what was going on with the pagans seem to have been incredibly limited. And that was often not the case when it came to Christian sources. For example, some of the stories that were told about the conversion of pagan kings are just incredibly limited. I mean, we have just the accounts of one of the members of the king's council. We don't even know the names of the rest of the council. And yet in other areas, we're told pretty detailed information about what the Pope was thinking. So you can see how he has more information in one area than in others. Bede did the best he could, but you know, he just did the best he could with what he had. And sometimes he just didn't have a lot. And nowhere is that as clear as when he's dealing with the pagans. And sometimes it just seems like he doesn't fully understand the implications of what he's writing about. For example, my favorite account by Bede involves the destruction of a pagan temple, which we're going to get to later. But what's interesting about this is that while we have a bunch of words being put into the pagan priest's mouth about how weak his gods are and that sort of thing, when the temple is destroyed by the priest, it's done in a way where it's actually kind of a ritual funeral. But Bede didn't know that. He didn't know what an old Norse ritual funeral looked like. Consequently, I think the account of the burning temple was probably fairly accurate. Though I do wonder how much of the prior denouncing of the gods would be accurate, and how much of that could have been fabricated by the sources that Bede was talking to. Because the reality is that trashing your gods... And then, when your king renounces those gods, giving them a respectful and formal death ritual seems to be a bit contradictory. But like I said, Bede's sources, as well as his available information, were rather limited, so he probably just didn't know enough to ask the right questions. And maybe his sources wouldn't have known the answers anyways. Anyway, that was a long way of saying it's really hard to draw a clear picture of what pagan worship during this period would have looked like. And just like we talked about with Christianity in the West, it's really tempting 
to try and apply the little hints that we have to the rest of the region. But what we might be seeing is a record of a very small portion of the population that isn't representative of anyone else whatsoever. So that's fun. But we aren't entirely in the dark here. We still have archaeology. And while that might not tell us blow-by-blow accounts of rituals and how they were carried out, there still is some good information in there for us to glean. Though it also carries with it a huge amount of risk. The thing about looking into religions and cultures where we don't have much of a written record is that we don't know how to put things into context. So just because something is buried or located at a burial or a religious site or something like that doesn't necessarily mean that it's religiously significant. The temptation is to think that it's religiously significant, but it might not be. Take, for example, modern funerals. If you go to a modern funeral, you're going to probably see some flowers, probably quite a lot of flowers, actually. And there's a good chance that if it's a burial funeral, someone will put some flowers onto the coffin. And that's not because they're being offered as a sacrifice to a god or any kind of special offering. It's just because that's what you do at funerals. Essentially, we bring flowers to funerals for cultural and social reasons. It's just kind of what we do. But if someone from 1,500 years from now dug up one of our cemeteries and found a bunch of residue from flowers on 50 to 75% of the graves that they exhumed, that person might be tempted to think that flowers were connected to the god of death or something like that, while the reality is much more mundane. So what I'm saying is that while some of this stuff was definitely religious in nature, we need to be careful in assuming that everything had religious import. But that being said, we do start to see changes in behavior that look like they were tied to religion. And as the years passed and power began to centralize around important families in the East, it became more common to build monuments. And this is certainly the case during the final stages of pagan domination in the East, which, of course, is after all that social stratification that we've spoken about in earlier episodes. Things were no longer as egalitarian as they used to be there was definitely a hierarchy that had kicked in. So these monumental ritual sites, which are very interesting, are really best looked at as reflective of the later pagan practice, and they don't necessarily reflect what was going on in the early sub-Roman period. But whatever, that really is the point that we're most interested in anyways, since that's when things were coming to a head in the East, with paganism and Christianity starting to clash. So right about then, they're building these big monumental sites. And the thing is that with these monumental sites, we're seeing that ritual sites were sometimes co-opted and integrated into them. So we had the blending of this elite cultural behavior and ritual behavior. And at these sites, we see evidence of the killing of oxen, the placing of animal heads on stakes, and some argue, maybe even human sacrifice. Though it seems like any time you're talking about pagans, someone is arguing for human sacrifice. So take that with a grain of salt. But if there was human sacrifice, my guess is chances are on the chopping block would have been one of the sons of Ida. Anyway, back to these sites. Naturally, in keeping with the story of the island, many of these monumental sites were earlier major sites in British history. There's a ridiculous amount of, for lack of a better term, recycling to be found in our early history. Also, just not a huge amount of creativity. Why do I say that? Well, chances are that the elite Anglo-Saxons were imitating their neighbors to the east and to the north, the Franks and the Scandinavians. 
as they were also building large religious buildings and mounds and that sort of thing. So what we're seeing here is that just like Christianity, as society evolved, so did paganism. And that makes sense. It's a religion, and religions change along with societies. They reflect the values, prosperity, or lack thereof, and all manner of circumstances that society goes through. Consequently, the nature of worship and the understanding of the gods in the early migration period was probably quite different from how they were understood and worshipped a year or two before the papal envoy. And we also see funerary rites change over time as well, and not just between burial and cremation, but also within the rites themselves. Think about how many variations were possible for these rites. For example, do you cremate on site with the dead all around you, or do you cremate elsewhere and relocate the ashes? What kind of wood do you use to burn the body? Do you burn the body with any other bodies, or is it on its own? And if you do burn with other bodies, how do you select them? What about animals? Are they burned? And once the body is burned, do you just bury the ashes, or do you also bury the melted items and bones? Do you put the ashes in the ground directly or in some sort of container? Do you spread them out somewhere? There are all sorts of possibilities, and that's just for cremation funerals. Burials are even more complex with the introduction of a greater variety of grave goods. And then you get all sorts of other aspects such as location, posture, depth, and any number of other issues that go along with burials. A big one is do you bury the body alone or with other bodies? And if so, how close of a tie between the bodies is required? Is blood relative required or is marriage enough? It's complex, isn't it? And you see variations like this all over the place. And just because one pagan community in England was doing one sort of burial doesn't mean that the rest of England was doing the same thing. And from the look of it, there was plenty of variety even among communities. And the really interesting part is that just because Unferth was cremated doesn't mean that everybody else would be. Burials and cremation burials can be found in the same cemeteries. So we're seeing people living at the same time in the same regions but having wildly different burials. And these burial rites were often gendered, with men receiving different grave goods and burial styles than the women of the community. But what these graves tell us about the religion, well, that's sketchy at best. After all, some of these decisions could have been for social or cultural reasons without any mysticism or gods involved whatsoever. We do find in some graves that items of food have been buried for the dead, so the question that we're left asking is, what's the significance of that? Was it payment, like pennies for the ferryman? Or was it for sustenance in the afterlife? Or maybe was it an item of respect? Or could it have nothing to do with religion and instead this was more like bringing flowers? It's hard to know. And we run into the same trouble with the appearance of animals in graves. And on top of that, the condition of the animals might not tell us as much as we want. For example, if a horse head is included in the grave, is that because the head is significant? Perhaps because the people were headhunters? Maybe. But maybe it's just a matter of logistics. A horse is an incredibly large animal, and it's easier to bury just the head rather than dig a hole large enough for the entire horse. So maybe that's why. Ultimately, it's really difficult to divine what was happening other than to recognize that, with the increasing level of complexity and extravagance, that religion was receiving a not insignificant amount of attention in pagan Anglo-Saxon England. But the presence of animal bones and even animal sacrifice 
just doesn't give us as clear of a picture as I think we'd like. What we really need is an on-the-ground reporter telling us what was going on and why. But so far, we just haven't been that lucky. So the reality is that we just aren't that sure what pagan worship really would have looked like in Britain at this point. But based upon the finds that we've uncovered, it looks like it was varied, sometimes extravagant, and rather personal to the communities that were practicing it. We're also going to find that, like with any religion, the people were not eager to abandon it. But far to the east, in Rome, some very powerful men were hoping to change all of that. Okay, let's talk about a major bulwark of Christianity in post-Roman Britain that, as you already knew about from the Welsh cast, was going long before Augustine showed up in Kent. Naturally, I'm talking about Wales. Now, it's hard to get a clear view of what Welsh Christianity would have looked like, but there probably would have been many aspects that would have been familiar to Christians on the continent. Towards the end of the Roman occupation of Britain, Christianity had become the official religion of the empire, and communities were pressured to not only convert, but to also construct churches. And this was the same on mainland Europe. And as things started to fall apart, civic urban life and the public spaces that were tied to it also started to decline. And we do see evidence of that occurring in the archaeological record. And in the face of that, it's probable that many of these churches became important community centers just like they would have on the continent. And some scholars claim that you can see evidence of the rise of this social aspect of Christianity in that churches were built next to forums at places like Lincoln, Silchester, and Exeter. And actually, the social pressure for conversion and that zeal that came in the late Roman Empire would have only increased with the declaration that public displays of paganism were illegal. And it's probable that during that period, pagan temples were desecrated or the very least, Christianized. And we do see evidence of that all throughout Roman Britain. Britain, at the end of the empire, was on a pro-Christian and anti-pagan path. And that was also the case for most of the rest of the Western Empire. And that probably explains the similarities between British and continental Christians. Now, you might be wondering what some of those similarities might be. Well, here are some examples. The focus upon saints and pilgrimage to holy sites, such as the tombs of saints, was popular on both sides of the channel. Though, given the lack of written resources, we generally only see hints of things like this, and just hints of Christian culture in general. But we do see it, for example, like when St. Germanus visited St. Albans. And we also have the fact that Gildas mentions saints, and we've already spoken about how Maelgwyn was connected to numerous British saints all throughout Wales. So at least on the level of pilgrimage, saints, and that sort of thing, there's a certain level of similarity with the rest of Europe. And St. Albans is actually interesting on its own, and I know I've mentioned it a few times, but here's something that I haven't told you about. From the archaeological record, it's actually a converted pagan site that went back at least to the days of the Claudian invasion. And the pagan temple complex that was there would have been much larger than would have been needed for the local population. So there were probably pagan pilgrims for things like festivals and holy days, and that would have been used to house them. Now, some have argued that the pagan cult that was operating there before it became Christianized had a focus upon decapitated heads, which actually would fit in rather well with the fact that it was converted to St. Albans because St. Alban was decapitated. 
and this was a period where sites were just being repurposed and consecrated. And given how unclear that entire story is, and actually that entire period of history in general is pretty unclear, it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that the church just came along and rebranded the existing religious community and redirected their energies towards a decapitated Christian saint rather than a decapitated pagan god or something like that. Anyway, I thought you'd find that kind of interesting, but that's one of the ways that Christianity was holding on. And actually, something even stranger was happening. It looks like, after the West pulled out, some of the communities were using mausoleums for Christian religious gatherings. Imagine how tough life must have been for the Christians to go in that direction. They were culturally Romano-British, so there was not an insignificant amount of squeamishness regarding the dead. I mean, the Romans didn't even have the dead buried within the city. They would have their cemeteries far away from the city. The Roman culture was not particularly brave when it came to the dead. And now, you had Romano-British, or at least former Romano-British people, worshipping among them. That's something else, isn't it? The Brits who held on to Christianity were kind of hardcore. And Wales was holding on tightly. Do you want proof? Look at the place names in Wales. You'll see a lot of locations that start with Llan. Well, that translates to church site or cemetery. So, for example, Llan Sadwern means the church or cemetery of Sadwern. In these names, we can see the echoes of holy men and even saints that have long been forgotten. So from these place names, as well as from other evidence, such as stonework, written records, and the like, we're starting to see evidence that Christianity was flourishing in the West. But with the proliferation of saints, many of whom are unknown, we're also seeing that this form of Christianity was decentralized, personalized with numerous saints and traditions. It was unique. We aren't seeing a form of Christianity that looks like Rome. And for a good part of it, we aren't really seeing professional religious figures, but something more grassroots, with a whole variety of local saints that were embraced by the community in their own ways. Now that might seem strange to you. You might be balking at the idea of a personalized Christianity in the West. And I could guess why. The Dark Ages are supposed to be primitive. That's what we learned in school. And the bias that we've been given is that the Celtic West was the most primitive of the bunch. But the story that you're hearing doesn't sound primitive at all, does it? Personal worship, the lack of top-down controls. It almost sounds modern. And that's not in keeping with the dismal backwards era that we've been told about in pop culture. But that's what we have. Now, just because it's decentralized doesn't mean that there weren't holy orders. We see evidence of bishops, deacons, priests, abbots, monks, hermits, and other holy men and women. And even St. Patrick had been censored by the religious establishment in Britain. So there were orders in Britain, but it wasn't quite as centralized as, for example, Rome was. And part of the reason for that is that as the Western Empire collapsed and Britain was left to its own devices... The centralized power and focus on unified worship that was so popular in Rome just started to vanish. And actually, we aren't even sure who many of the church leaders were or what their territories were. And it's likely that bishops had to relocate and operate out of monasteries, if they were lucky, 
and that some of them even had to relocate their flocks to less pleasant surroundings, such as mausoleums. So for a while, it seems like things got a bit confused and messy. But the overwhelming theme that we're seeing is that over time, Christianity became much more personal, and that thanks to steadfast communities, you had Christian communities in Wales that date back to antiquity. Though just because you had Christian communities and church leaders didn't mean that all church leaders were pious. Gildas lacerated a number of the leaders in ways that rather sounded like they belonged in the accounts of the Pelagians. They were apparently focused too much on material wealth and also on the approval of the Welsh kings. Now, Gildas clearly didn't want the approval of the Welsh kings, or if he did, he was kind of playing hard to get. Our favorite nutty old monk also hints that priests were getting married, which we might see as rather modern, but Gildas saw it as an absolute abomination. And as far as Gildas was concerned, all this stuff was outside of the scope of their job descriptions. He felt that the clergy should build churches, preach, celebrate the Eucharist, distribute alms, sing psalms, understand the Bible, and other than that, just basically live a virtuous and ascetic life. Did you see sex in that list? Nope. And yeah, Gildas was pretty unhappy with the idea that priests might be hooking up on occasion, regardless of whether or not they are married. So he came down pretty hard on the idea that priests might be getting married. Anyway, so after Rome pulled out, over time, the focus of Christianity started to shift. And it started to go away from churches and more towards monasteries. You probably already noticed that shift thanks to Gildas, but it was taking off all over the place in Wales. It looks like the religious community in general was influenced by St. Martin. So after the Western Empire really started to collapse and British urban life started to weaken along with it, the religious orders started to move in the direction of monasteries. So St. Athlyde, St. Peran, and St. Cadoc all founded monasteries in the sub-Roman period. And their example was noticed by others, and as a consequence, within a hundred years, dozens of other monasteries were established. And unlike the pop image of monks that we've been given, namely that they withdrew from life, disconnected from the community, and basically spent a lot of time singing, these monks were engaged in their communities and in their spiritual lives. And it seems like that engagement worked. For example, St. Defrig and others organized local communities into building dozens of churches in Erging and Gwent, two major kingdoms in southern Wales. And as a result, there was a whole network of churches in the south, and consequently, even rural Welshmen weren't more than a few hours from a church. That's really impressive considering the fact that this is in the days where most people were just walking around. So being only a few hours from a church, there's quite a network there. Monks were also working as missionaries. And when we look at place names, like I mentioned earlier, we can see shadows of the success that those individuals must have had. So Christianity began to grow in influence and power in the West. And despite the personal and community nature of the warship, there still was a sort of hierarchy that formed, which was intertwined with the hierarchy of the secular communities that they were a part of. So the organization of the religious orders of the 5th and 6th centuries started to look a bit like this. The wealthy and powerful families began to control the monastic communities, generally through abbots. How? Well, it became a sort of weird blend of nepotism and heredity. If you were the nephew of an abbot, for example, 
you wouldn't be crazy for expecting to take over his duties when he finally stepped down or died. And being an abbot is an important role. Sure, they answered to the bishops, but in general, they controlled the religious activity of the monks. And the monks were the major movers and shakers in this era of Christian life in Britain. So they basically controlled the religious life of the communities. And those jobs were being taken up by the powerful families in the area. So, like with most things, the elite spotted a potential rival power base, the abbots, and co-opted it into their own, further solidifying their hold. So that's nice. Now, like everything in Britain, I guess it should be pointed out that monasteries varied as well. There really was nothing that was monolithic and universal in the UK, except for the fact that it rained a lot. Other than that, everything varied. And through the life of St. Samson, we hear of some of these differences. It seems like, while Samson's monastery was ascetic, it wasn't ascetic enough for him, and there was another community on a nearby island that he really wanted to join. And of course, from Gildas, we're also hearing of areas that weren't ascetic really at all. However, while Gildas was really appalled by the riches and obsequious behavior of some of the religious leaders that he knew of, we don't really see anything that approached what will come later in England with the tide of drunken English monks. At this point in time, in Wales, the discussion seemed to be really how ascetic someone should be and whether or not they had enough nice things, and whether or not they were being too nice to the kings. There's nothing approaching the frat-style discussions that we're going to hear of later when England gets into the mix. But it does sound like not all monasteries were created equal. Anyway, from many sources, including the Venerable Bede, we know that there were quite a lot of religious communities in the West long before the Pope decided that Britain needed to be converted. And these Christian communities were actually on the cutting edge. For example, they pioneered personal penance, as well as peregrinatio, which, despite its name, is not a kind of cheese, sadly. Rather, it's the idea of renouncing your homeland in search of religious purity. This concept led to a change in tone for missionaries and monks all throughout Europe. Now their evangelizing became more pronounced. Also, penance became more serious and almost legalistic with specific punishments for specific breaches of religious behavior. That's the personal penance thing that the Brits came up with. And this penance was actually rather organized. But get a load of this. Sex with a man or a woman would get you three years of penance. And that's a lot of penance, especially when you consider that bestiality would only get you five years. So basically, bestiality was only marginally worse than consensual sex with another person. I mean, I'm 100% behind coming down strong on someone who's harassing Fluffy the family sheep, but the fact that the penalty was pretty close to that of a consensual relationship? Sure, I get that they're supposed to be celibate, but still, that's kind of crazy. But the early church, including Wales, had a ton of hang-ups about the body. Gluttony, laziness, and of course, sex. Oh man, were they focused on the bedroom. Homosexuality, sex out of marriage, sex within marriage, anywhere sex was happening, it was a bit of an issue for many of the monks and missionaries. And before you blame all of that on the Welsh, it's actually the fault of Rome. It's all because the body was seen as pretty damn sinful. And the idea that the body was a primary vector for sin is an idea that came out of antiquity. You can't blame Taffy McMissionary for this one. But the fact is, it was a major focus. 
I mean, you can even see it in Gildas. It's all over the place in his rantings. So for as modern as some of their ideas were, what with the personalized style of worship, they weren't too modern in other ways. But we know who to blame for it, right? Thanks, Rome. Anyway, so you had a focus on the sins of the body, and that led to an increased desire to avoid those sins. The solution that was available was to join single-sex communities where abstinence was compulsory. That should sort it out, right? So naturally, it led to a boost in monastic populations, which led to further religious zeal thanks to the engagement with society. And since the elite were putting their allies and family members in charge of those monasteries, they were probably rather encouraging of this monasticism. And the growing acceptance of monasteries, preaching regarding the sins of the body, and the emphasis on purging the soul of sins led to more monasteries, which led to more outreach and converts, etc., etc. It's starting to look like a dynamo, isn't it? The point of all of this is that, at least in the West, there was no need for missionaries from Rome. They had monastic communities, bishops, missionaries, hierarchies built on nepotism, complexes of churches, penalties for touching the family sheep, and all manner of other rules. They were good to go. I mean, they were Christian people, ruled by Christian kings. There was no need for conversion as far as the Welsh were concerned. But what about England? As we've spoken about in earlier episodes, the Pope has sent Augustine to bring Christianity to the English. And the impression that we've been given is something along the lines of they were pagans without knowledge of Christianity. And the reality is that much of what we know about the conversion of England in the 6th century comes from Bede. But the trouble is that Bede doesn't seem overly well informed about the 6th century of England. In fact, it looks like until he got access to Pope Gregory's letters, he didn't even know when St. Augustine was sent to England to convert the population. So it seems to me that he probably didn't know the whole truth about the state of Christianity in England. What we're told by Bede is that by the time that the Roman Catholic Church returned to Britain and St. Augustine landed in Kent, that he had to go far to the west to find Christians to speak with. But I don't think that's entirely accurate, and there were probably Christians to be found if you looked in the right places. So today we're going to talk about that. So, for example, at Iona, we know of at least two Christian Englishmen, Pilu and Generis, who were practicing at St. Columba's Monastery in what would become Scotland, and they were doing that before the time of Augustine. And then you have the example of the Roman villa at Lullingston. That had a house church which demonstrated that, at least for a while, there were some wealthy Christians living there. And then you have Bede's claims that the Christian cult of St. Alban was maintained without break from Roman times. And major scholars, such as Levison and Campbell, accept that assertion, which meant that there would have been a Christian cult operating right in the center of Anglo-Saxon England. And actually, there was another Christian cult, the cult of Sixtus. And I find this one absolutely fascinating. The followers of Sixtus claimed that he was a saint, but in reality, it looks like he was more of a bishop. And what's really interesting is that his followers couldn't really recall any specific facts about him. They didn't know how he died. They didn't know what miracles he performed. And they were even a bit shaky on Christian practice. 
And yet they were devout members of this cult. And you could see how that could happen, right? Over the course of 200 years, a respected bishop became elevated and sanctified in the eyes of the community that he left behind. And the oral tales had changed over time, so that things became less clear and a little bit more mystical. And throughout all of this, the finer points of the religion that Sixtus had practiced also started to get a bit cloudy. Such that, 200 years later, when a follower of that same religion showed up, he could see the shadows of his own religion, but it all seemed a little bit distorted. It makes me think of the community of children in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, I'm going there. But seriously, do you remember the kids that were abandoned after the plane crash? And they had this full mythos that had hints of the history of the group in there, but it was also altered and distorted. And they had various relics that weren't really relics, but rather they were just random, misunderstood objects. And the account of this cult kind of sounds a little bit like that. Now, needless to say, when the Pope heard about this, he wasn't overly impressed, and he had the shrine shut down. But that's a lot of Christianity to be circulating in a region that the Pope believed to be in need of a mission. So what happened there? Well, like we've been talking about for quite a while, Britain was not cast adrift and completely isolated. It was engaged with the world, and Christianity was on the rise in Gaul and in the Germanic regions. I mean, there were Saxons on the continent who had been Christian for at least 30 to 40 years before Rome got involved with the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And we know that the kingdoms of Britain were involved in trade with their neighbors. So it's entirely likely that there were a number of Anglo-Saxons in Britain who were quite familiar with the site of churches, basilica, and clergy. And they were right next to two regions that were becoming intensely Christian, Ireland and Wales, and actually soon, Scotland. And in Wales, the religion never really left, and with the rise of monastic life, it really began to pick up steam. And in Ireland, man, things had changed a lot since we last left them. Palladius, St. Patrick, and the other saints that we've heard about did their jobs very well. And Ireland was Christian, and they could speak Latin by the 5th and 6th centuries. And they were devout. And the thing is that the border between Ireland and Britain was, well, porous. You probably already knew that thanks to the earlier raids as well as the Irish settlement that was occurring in Wales. But it was really porous. So we had the Celtic West and the Celtic Far West, and they were both hanging on to Christianity. And not just hanging on, but evangelizing. And that meant that not only was the Celtic West converted to Christianity, but the Celtic North also started to follow suit. St. Columba, who was an Irish missionary, traveled to the north and built a monastery at Iona about 35 years before Augustine was sent to England. And the Picts in the north, including their king Bridey, had been converted for about 20 years before Augustine showed up. And in one source, we're told that in the middle of the 6th century, so maybe as much as 50 years before the Pope became interested in Britannia, we're told that St. Columba visited an Anglo-Saxon kingdom, and he even mentioned a few details about how they practiced their funerals. And they were accurate enough that it makes me wonder if, indeed, the source was accurate. And given the Irish emphasis on evangelizing, Campbell also theorizes that Irish monks could well have been visiting English kingdoms as missionaries, 
After all, an Irish monk named Dagan did visit Kent just a little over a decade after St. Augustine's mission. So Christianity wasn't unknown to the island, despite what the Pope might have believed. And actually, when we look at Wales, which we just did, you see that Christianity was flourishing. Now, I suppose it's understandable that Rome wouldn't expect that, though. After all, we're talking about the far reaches of the end of the world. Dragons be here. And yet, when the West collapsed, and it looked like Christianity might vanish entirely, far into the barbarian lands in the West, even farther than the long arm of Rome managed to get, in Ireland, Christianity had found a foothold. And through the religious fervor of those who were some of Rome's staunchest opponents in the West, the Celts of Wales and Ireland, Christianity lived on. And it grew. And it spread out to what would become Scotland. And it's looking like it might have spread into what would become England as well. That's crazy, isn't it? You would think that Christianity would be at its zenith in the West when Roman power was strong. But in actual fact, as Roman power collapsed in the West... That was when Christianity really began to become influential. And when you think about it, this really shouldn't have happened. Roman education was deflating in the West along with the empire. And that meant that there were limited ways that a person of means could have become literate. And it wasn't just wealth that was a barrier. It was also just the simple availability of instructors. And the reason that that's so important is that Christianity, much like Judaism, places a great amount of importance upon its holy book. Which, of course, requires the ability to read. And you couldn't just read in any language. You had to read in Latin, because at this point in history, the Bible was written in Latin. And the thing is, that while Latin was spoken in some circles in the West, it wasn't the common and indigenous language of the people. So there were all sorts of barriers for you to even have access to the ability to read the Bible. And ultimately, if you were capable of reading it, you were probably upper class, and you were probably one of the lucky members of society who was able to receive a classical education, which meant that your education had a lot of focus upon grammar, rhetoric, and oration. Essentially, you would become accustomed to the tight style and form of writers such as Cicero. And then you had the Bible which had been retranslated many times. And at this point in history, it was written in a form of Latin that would have been appropriate for the early Christians of the West. So not the highbrow Latin of Cicero. Don't forget that this wasn't the religion of the wealthy patricians. It was the religion of the urban poor. And so the Latin that was used to speak to them was quite different. Further, it wasn't a perfect translation and it had patterns and sequences that made sense outside of the scope of Greco-Latin writing, but not really from within it. It was a bit of a mess for anyone expecting Ciceronian Latin, really. Now, I'm not sure if I explained myself very well there. What I'm getting at is that the form of the Bible in the style of Latin that it was written in could well have appeared like it had all the poetry of a badly translated DVR manual to the educated members of the West who were actually able to read it. And given the emphasis placed upon the text and how it was taught to be the word of God, it might have been a bit jarring. I'm sure that faithful luminaries of the time found poetry in its language, but it wouldn't have been the style and form that they were accustomed to reading in school. Rather, it would have sounded vulgar and probably a bit awkward. 
So the success of Christianity is surprising, as it was a religion focused upon a book that only a small portion of the population can read, and some of whom, who were reading it, might have been thinking, this grammar is the best that God can do? Huh. But it overcame that. And the converts didn't just believe. They evangelized to each other across the Irish Sea. And all of this happened before Augustine's arrival. Frankly, this probably wouldn't have even been in the Pope's wildest dreams. But that's what happened. Now later on, Bede tells us of how Anglo-Saxon kingdoms would sometimes have close relationships with each other regardless of religious differences. For example, the King of Kent married a Christian princess. The Prince of Northumbria took refuge among Christian Scots. A pagan warlord of Mercia, who you'll get to know very well eventually, was allied with a Welsh Christian king. And Bede also notes with disapproval about how religious antagonism just wasn't a virtue of the earlier era of Britain. He really wasn't pleased about how people of different faiths were just getting along in the pre-Augustinian days. How it was sort of a I'm okay, you're okay situation. But that gives us a potential window into what might have been going on in England. The fact of the matter is that while we don't have records of close relationships between Christian and pagan kingdoms happening in the 5th and 6th centuries, that's probably more reflective of the dearth of our sources rather than anything specific about the religious climate of the time. If Bede is complaining about the fact that no one really cared what other people believed, maybe they were sharing, maybe they were talking a little bit. Who knows? But the reality is that the English were up to their necks in Christians at this point. Their kingdoms were surrounded by them. And we know that there were several Christian cults operating within England. And most importantly, don't forget the British underclasses that were living in Anglo-Saxon territories. Thanks to the expansive actions of the Anglo-Saxons into British territories, there were an increasing number of British subjects living under Anglo-Saxon rule. And I'm sure that at least some of them held on to their Christian faith. Now, while that might not have been very persuasive to the Germanic pagan conquering upper classes, you're still seeing a lengthy exposure to the religion. Consequently, it's possible that Augustine's mission wasn't the first stage of the English conversion to Christianity, but rather it was just one part of a whole continuum of conversion thanks to the Anglo-Saxons being exposed to Christianity from all directions. Okay, today we're going to talk about why the Anglo-Saxon kings might want to convert to Christianity. And we're going to discuss it on a social and political level, rather than any sort of moral level. I know that I have plenty of Christians who listen to this show, but by putting questions of the soul aside, with the exception of how people on the ground might have seen those issues, I'm not saying that those concerns are invalid, or that they didn't have a role in their decisions, or anything like that. I'm merely sticking to the historical fact. Ultimately, because questions of faith regarding things like whether or not there's an afterlife are just not suited for a show like this. Now that being said, I will point out when people act in a hypocritical way that runs counter to their professed faith. Again, this isn't to cast dispersions on any particular religion, but rather to highlight who's acting in a hypocritical way because I think that's an important aspect to discuss regarding the personalities of some of these individuals. Also, because... Well, I'm just not a fan of hypocrites. And this is sort of how I've always done this show. For example, I recently got a complaint that I was hard on the drunken monks, but not on the drunken pagan warbands in the Boozy episodes. And this reviewer believed it was because I'm biased against Christians. 
Actually, the reason for the derisive tone in that segment wasn't, in fact, because I like punching monks, but rather, it was because the drunken orgies ran counter to the tenets of their faith. And the pagans didn't get a similar tone because they didn't have any similar prohibitions of that sort of behavior, at least none that we know of. It isn't specific religions that I dislike, just followers who are hypocritical and fail to follow what they claim to believe. And one other thing to point out before we get going, I'm going to do my best to hold these individuals accountable to what people believed at the time rather than our modern understandings. Just like with everything else in culture, religion evolves. Different aspects can be emphasized at different times, and we're going to see that as we go forward. So I'm going to do my best to not expect them to behave in a modern way regarding their own religion. But if they're acting in a way that runs counter to the way their faith was understood at the time, I'm going to point that out. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's get to the main thrust of this episode. Why would an Anglo-Saxon king want to convert to Christianity? I mean, we're looking at a warrior culture, and their gods reflected that culture. They're all bloody warrior gods. They're tough, scary gods. And anyone who spent time looking at the character of Christ would soon realize that he was a civilian. He was not a warrior. And pretty much everyone with any status in Anglo-Saxon culture, with the possible exception of the priest class, was a warrior in some way or another. So what good was this civilian god? And Christ actually probably appeared rather strange to the Anglo-Saxons, since his story involves him being killed. And he never fights a war. He doesn't even fight back. And his message was one of forgiveness and peace. And his followers eat his flesh and they drink his blood. All in all, that probably seemed really strange to the Anglo-Saxons. And on top of everything else, you weren't allowed to worship him in addition to your war gods. It wasn't like, well, we can have this nice civilian god, and we also have Thunor and Woden looking out for us. We're going to see later on in our story that some pagan kings will try and just fit Christ into their pantheon. But that really wasn't allowed, and the church was quite clear that you could only worship the Christian god. No others. In a world that was filled with gods, such an action would be spurning a lot of other gods, and a lot of other war gods. And that seemed dangerous. And if this god was so powerful, why were the Britons, who generally worshipped him, subordinate to the Anglo-Saxons, who had war gods? Did they really want to spurn their successful gods in favor of this one, who really didn't seem to be doing all that much for the Britons? I mean, how do you sell this? Well, the opening volley could well have been some of the same statements that Gildas was making. Basically, you'll burn for this, buddy. Forever. Turn back and repent, or get ready to be roasted, like a chicken. But that's only going to work on someone who already suspects that hell is real. And if the story of later kings such as Edwin are indicative of the overall tone of conversion, this was a state matter to be decided, with the advice and counsel of the king's advisors. So if this isn't a matter of the fear of hell, but rather of politics for these pagan kings, then what could the emissary of the church do? Well, one of the arguments that the church used, as evidenced by a letter written by Pope Gregory to Ethelbert, was that conversion can make his, quote, glorious name still more glorious to posterity, end quote. He used Emperor Constantine as an example. The idea being that, sure, Ethelbert had a lot of power and worth, but if you wanted that to live on forever, and if you wanted it to be mighty until the end of time, 
this was the way to do it. Not only that, but the reason that you have your power and your honor is because God gave it to you in order to carry out his will. And if you fail in that task, you can take it away. Another argument put forward is that by converting to Christianity, you'll be warded with victory and wealth. And we'll explore that victory aspect more in a few minutes. But that's a rather enticing offer. And it was not overly risky for the church to make it, considering that if a king converted and then badly lost in battle, he would probably end up dead. So the missionary wasn't exactly going to get too many demands for a refund. Now, naturally, the Anglo-Saxons would turn and look at the Britons and say, wait a minute, if this Christian god is going to offer victory and wealth, what's happening with them? But chances are, if that question was posed, the Roman church would probably say, well, they're not worshiping in the right way, which was kind of their contention to begin with, and that all they need to do is look at life in the Mediterranean and look at how well they're doing, and then say, and that was all because they're worshiping Christ. And that goes in line with another argument that they made. We're told that they basically would try and argue them into conversion. And again, this would rely upon their understanding of how the world worked, and also their understanding of logic. So in today's view, these arguments seem rather odd. But it looks like the arguments could be quite persuasive at the time. And they involved things like asking why, if their god was powerful and good, were they living in the cold north, while Christians were living in the fertile Mediterranean with plenty of olive oil and wine. Now, if I was a king listening to that, I would be tempted to say something like, I don't know, but I hope you enjoy sleeping outside in that cold because you're not sleeping under my roof, you passive-aggressive jerk. But, you know, that's just me. But the reality is that kings had much more to be concerned about than simple matters of argument and personal preference. Religion was a political matter in many ways for these kings. And conversion was a rather risky proposition due to the fact that not all your thanes and aethelings and supporters would be happy with the switch. And indeed, there are plenty of examples where people were angry, sometimes violently angry, in response to conversion. But it wasn't all bad, and by adopting Christianity, the king could gain access to quite a few advantages for both his kingdom and his reign. At the most basic and obvious level, with the introduction of Christianity, would come at least some level of literacy. Naturally, we're not talking about schools and widespread literacy, but having monks and learned men who could read and write at court would be tremendously useful to the illiterate ruling classes of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. This would give them the ability, among other things, to have written laws. It would also allow them to gain lost and foreign knowledge from books that were previously undecipherable. Additionally, Whereas paganism appears to have been a rather personal and fragmented system of worship, Christianity, especially the Roman variety that was being brought to the Anglo-Saxons, offered an additional level of cultural unity. And the importance of this cannot be understated. As we've been seeing in the show, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms have been expanding. And they have been specifically expanding into British communities. British communities that could well have had a continuing Christian belief among the local population. The monastic movement in the West had really hit a fever pitch by the 6th century. So right around this period in history, as the expanding Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were moving into British communities, they could well have found a local population that was under the influence of a certain level of religious fervor. And the Anglo-Saxon kings probably knew that with these expansions, they were getting a little stretched out, and that large tracts of wild land, and probably wilder men, were now in their domain. 
and they needed a way to control them. The reality is that the farther into the British territories these Anglo-Saxon kingdoms expanded, the larger the British population became, and the more difficult it would have been to control. You might remember from the earlier episodes how we discussed the issues of a food-based economy, and how difficult it made running larger kingdoms. Well, add to that more than just logistics, but how your nobles, and sometimes your court itself, would need to go into wild territory inhabited by a foreign cultural group that spoke a different language and did not seem overly pleased with your rule. Kind of spooky, right? So, efficient administration and control in such a situation would have been a nightmare, and that in turn could cause all kinds of internal political problems. Well, the unified nature of worship within Christianity offered those expansive kingdoms a solution. They might be from different communities and speak different languages, but they were bound by worshiping the same God. It would have been a way to get your foot in the door with your, probably, grouchy new subjects. And because of the level of religious fervor in the West, being associated with ecclesiastics might well have placated the British population, who were newly under Anglo-Saxon rule, and provided a sense of unity despite the wildly differing cultures. So basically, gaining the favor of Christian holy men could have staved off potential rebellions by the British population. And that's just good politics. This new religion could have also been useful in acquiring new lands, and even annexing neighboring kingdoms. Essentially, it really could be an effective tool for warfare. The old gods of the Anglo-Saxons were, well, rather bloody, at least when compared to that most famous of hippies. So it might surprise you to hear that Christianity was useful for warfare, especially when its message is, ostensibly, one of peace, and the Norse religion had that whole Ragnarok thing going on. But you have to keep a couple things in mind. The first is that Christianity contains a tremendous amount of material, and it can be spun and manipulated in all kinds of ways, especially when it's presented to an illiterate culture who can't read the source material. So Christian figures like Constantine and warrior kings from the Old Testament could have been pushed to the front, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount might take a back seat, depending on the needs and wishes of the mighty. So that's one way it could be made more attractive to those who were rather warlike in nature. Another way it could be useful in warfare is tied to Bede's comment regarding the religious climate in England. Namely, the fact that he wasn't happy with how, in the early Anglo-Saxon history, religious antagonism wasn't really of value. Sure, there were wars, but if we believe Bede, they probably weren't over gods. I mean, you might seek the favor of a war god, but you might not go and attack a village for failing to worship him. Religious antagonism changes all of that. So ironically, despite the message of peace, that cultural quirk increased the chances of people believing that their wars were sanctioned by God once a ruler converted. But I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that wars over gods never occurred before Christianity, or that Christianity always causes wars. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that based upon Bede's statements of cultures and values, as well as future religious wars, that for some kings, having a new cause for war could well have been an enticing reason to convert, and that Christianity at this time did provide that reason. We're also seeing that Christianity could be useful for motivating the population to take on a war footing. Like we spoke about in the warfare episodes, getting people to put their lives in danger, and definitely getting people to kill other people, isn't the easiest thing to do. 
Even with modern training techniques, it's not easy. So at this era, getting an untrained militia being willing to mobilize would have been quite a headache. Modern studies have suggested that you need a whole variety of psychological motivators in play to get an average person being willing to go to war and to kill. But a big one is the belief that the cause is righteous. Well, religious fervor and that whole deus volt thing really would have helped that out a bit. So with this worldview, the militia wouldn't be just fighting for a king, but they'd also be fighting for God. And as a king, that extra bit of motivation could be really useful, especially when things were getting increasingly more rowdy. And just like with the Franks, we will see exactly that use of Christianity occurring in Britain. Being sanctioned by God to crush a neighboring kingdom is a powerful thing. And in this era that we're charging headlong into, we're definitely going to see larger kingdoms devouring smaller kingdoms through a variety of means. And some of them were pretty brutal. And some of them were using religious differences. And therefore, in their view, warfare sanctioned by God. So basically, Bede had his own reasons for disapproving of the way that the pagans approached religion. But for kings, on a political level, Bede's emphasis on religious antagonism and how it should be practiced by Christians would have been a hell of a selling point for the kings who were unscrupulous enough to wield it. Campbell also theorizes that it might have made holding newly conquered pagan territories easier because there might have been an association between the old rulers and their old gods. So when a Christian Anglo-Saxon kingdom conquered a neighboring pagan Anglo-Saxon kingdom with a dynasty that was connected to Woden, they wouldn't just be defeating the king and destroying his line. They would also be eliminating the religion and bringing in new gods. And this might have allowed the rulers to establish a clean break. Both the old gods and the old rulers would be gone. This would be a new age, and there would be nothing left behind to remind them of their old rulers and their old ways. That sort of thing. So, Christianity was rather useful for the expanding kingdoms. And we're going to see as we're going forward, there will be Anglo-Saxon kings who will wield it expertly. Though, ultimately, anything can be used for personal gain if enough thought is put behind it. For example, Riggs makes a compelling argument that the Anglo-Saxon kings used the laws of sanctuary, you know, where criminals could take sanctuary in a church. Well, they would use it to function basically as a trap where they could capture criminals and enslave them. And that was hardly the original purpose. But it looks like that might have been how it was used. Anyway, that's a tangent. The point is that these warlike kings don't really seem to have missed a beat when they converted. They missed that whole message of peace thing and they just kept on fighting. They just had new reasons to fight now. Now, conversion also came about as a result of power disparities. For example, if a Bretwalda is Christian, or vehemently anti-Christian, it might be a good idea, if you're the king of a weaker sub-kingdom, to follow his lead. And we will see going forward that lesser figures did do that. And sometimes they would wait until the death of powerful kings in the region before they become brave enough to change their own religion counter to what that powerful king believed. We're going to also see a lot of conversions occurring at the request, and oftentimes a more impolite demand, of very powerful kings. I mean, that happened a lot. At sword point sometimes. And that might raise a question for you. Why force another king to convert? If they don't really believe and they're just using religion as a tool, as it looks like some of these kings might have been doing, what's the point of forcing someone else to convert? Well, I guess there's an implicit level of control there 
So it's probably a good way to flex your muscles and show how tough you are. And it definitely would get some of the more zealous members of society to think more fondly of you. Look at what Oswe just pulled off. He's doing God's work out there. Let's pray for him. You know, that sort of thing. And depending on your understanding of the principles of Christianity, if you believed, you might also think this might get you a better plot of land in heaven, or maybe even a few mystical favors in this life as well. But it also had an immediate political benefit. It allowed for bonds to be formed between individuals where there were no blood or marital ties. The bond between godfather and godson looks like it was rather significant in Anglo-Saxon Britain, and it could form a relationship that could be compared to those of family members. In a culture of hierarchies and mutual obligation, such a formal tie could be very useful and important in forming and maintaining superior subordinate relationships. It looks like it could have been like an alliance or oath of fealty, but on steroids. So when you look at it, there were quite a lot of rational, political, and social reasons to convert that had absolutely nothing to do with any sort of religious belief and everything to do with political expediency. Now, were there people who converted because of belief? I'm sure there were. But as we go forward, we're going to see that some kings were doing things that seemed to run counter to the religion they recently converted to. And maybe it was just a lapse and they actually believed. Or maybe it was just poor religious education or something like that. But we also have to consider that there were some rational reasons to convert, and it's possible that some of these kings said they were Christian for politics, but really never had any sort of Christian faith when you get down to it. They were merely using it as a tool. In the end, it's a very human thing, and I think it helps us better understand who these people were and why they were doing the things they were doing, which we're going to get to very soon. Okay, before I pack it in, I have a listener question. This comes from Joe. And he had two questions. The first is, why the heck didn't someone just kill Gildas? I can't imagine some of these Dark Age rulers, most of whom killed many, many men, would sit there and get insulted by a well-read monk without doing anything about it. Well, that's a good question, Joe. My guess is that it's always been seen as a pretty awful thing to kill a religious person. Take Thomas Becket as an example. The murder of Thomas Becket ended incredibly badly for Henry II. Killing someone who's seen as a holy man is just generally bad juju. But the other possibility is that he might have been writing from outside of their reach. For example, a 9th century account said that Gildas was writing from Brittany. So maybe they would have liked to have killed him, but they never really had the chance. Now Joe would also like to know how and when Gildas died. Well, tradition holds that he died in 570, on the 29th of January to be exact. But that's not the most reliable of dates, and we aren't given any specific details on how he died other than the fact that he was sick. So, unfortunately, we just don't know a lot. Anyway, thanks for writing in. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you should write me. You can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also head over to Facebook and join the community there. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And of course, we are on Twitter. Just search for at britishpodcast. And actually, I just live tweeted a really amazingly bad movie, The Vikings from 1958. So sometimes I do silly things like that on Twitter. So if you'd like to follow me there, at British Podcast is where you need to be. And, of course, you can also go over to the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click Get Involved, and click Forums, and we'll see you over there. All right, thanks for listening.